0: War and peace, a soldier's conundrum, a puzzle, a dilemma. A soldier's purpose is war, and yet how do they make peace with their wars? This summer we were asked to reflect on some theological topics from the perspective of our UU movement, exploring both the historical stance and the modern one. We were to then explore our evolving take on the same theological topic. Ultimately, hopefully, to highlight the idea that spirituality is an ever-evolving, deepening experience for both the humans involved and the UU religious movement. There was a suggestion of ten topics. I took War and Peace. It was not on the list, but as a true UU, I added it. War and Peace covers some, if not all, the suggested topics. What it is to be human... The nature of God, truth, reason, and knowledge, the nature of spirituality, how do we account for evil, death and birth, Jesus, human or divine, heaven, hell, redemption. During my first 50 years, our country, uu and I have been morally and ethically challenged by four great societal movements—racism, the Vietnam War, women's rights, and the threat of nuclear war. As I progressed through my military career, I was confronted primarily with these four great upheavals. My spiritual journey mirrored many of the same issues that society faced and I continue to think and change about these challenges. I was born in Arizona and attended nine different schools in six different western states, from Arizona to Alaska. I found myself attending middle school in the territory of Alaska, which became a state while I was there, because that was as far as one could get from Arizona. You see, My previous stepdad had custody of my two younger half-brothers and me during August. The end of August, he refused to return us, hiding us out until Mom and stepdad number two won a court battle to get us back. Living in Alaska would make collecting us from Arizona much more difficult. We were poor and lived in a hillside trailer park in a 27-foot house trailer we had towed from Montana. Below the trailer park and the Marsh Flats was a shanty town where blacks lived. Most days a black classmate, also named Charles, would meet me on the road leading to the bus stop up the hill. The KKK paintings on the church doors at the bus stop street corner, together with my stepdad's repeated angry admonition about not associating with inferior blacks, prematurely ended our relationship. Fast forward a few years. I'm attending high school in Oregon. My mom and stepdad number two divorce, and we move to public housing. I drop out of high school to help run the family restaurant, which goes bankrupt. I get a job as a cook in a 24-hour downtown restaurant working graveyard shifts. I work with a black Oregon State Penitentiary parolee in his 30s, who is a three-time loser for drugs, robbery, and assault. The late night and early morning conversations Don and I have five or six nights a week, back then a normal work week was 48 hours, over a year lead to a unique relationship. A naive white teenager and a black drug-addicted Korean War veteran I must complete his parole successfully to avoid an automatic life sentence for his next conviction. Don, his insights and perspectives, so totally different from mine, changed my life. I learned to appreciate the huge advantages I had being white. And Don's parole discharge certificate, given to me as a thank you for helping him serve his parole, is my life's most prized possession. So in 1968, as a young Army helicopter gunship pilot at Fort Hood, Texas, having been drafted in late 65, I'm on strip alert, awaiting an order to fly our gunships to a riot-torn Detroit or Chicago following Martin Luther King's assassination. Blacks were rioting, cities were burning, and people were dying. I'm wondering where Don is, Completing his parole, he left Oregon for the Ohio area to avoid any possibility of an Oregon automatic life sentence. Could I have fired on those rioters in Detroit? Were they enemies of the state? As part of my oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, would I be called to shoot black Americans? To this day... I'm forever forever thankful I didn't have to find out. A Yale sociology professor, Jennifer Richardson, wrote, People learn to be whatever their society and culture teaches them. We assume that it takes parents actively teaching their kids for them to be racist. The truth is that unless parents actively teach kids not to be racist, they will be. As a child I obeyed, as a teenager I learned, as a young soldier I was challenged, and as an older person I reflect. Alan's great talk on evil earlier this summer asked, ever been so angry you wanted to kill someone? Close your eyes and raise your hand if so. I thought about it and was coming to a no answer But then I realized I had indeed actually killed people in Vietnam. Did that count? It must. So I raised my hand. But I don't remember being angry when pulling the trigger. My first 10 years of military service was during the Vietnam War, 65 to 75. I spent two of those years fighting in Vietnam where I logged over 1,500 combat missions as a helicopter pilot. My view of the war evolved during this time from Vietnam being a just war, needed to stop communism, to suspecting it to be ill-conceived and doubting the South Vietnamese government's moral authority and legitimacy. Tim O'Brien, in his Vietnam novel, The Things They Carried, wrote, a true war story is never moral. It does not instruct nor encourage virtue, nor suggest models of proper human behavior, nor restrain men from doing the things men have always done. If a story seems moral, do not believe it. If at the end of a war story you feel uplifted, or if you feel that some small bit of rectitude has been salvaged from the larger waste, then you have been made the victim of a very old and terrible lie. There is no rectitude whatsoever. There is no virtue. As a first rule of thumb, therefore, you can tell a true war story by its absolute and uncompromising allegiance to obscenity and evil. You can tell a true, rule, true war story if it embarrasses you. If you don't care for obscenity, you don't care for the truth. If you don't care for the truth, Watch how you vote. Send guys to war that come home talking dirty. It seems to me that Americans are absolutely clueless as to the cost of war. We build monuments to dead soldiers, but no monuments to those who work for peace. No monuments to those who are wounded, disabled, be it physically or mentally. We lament at the over 1,600 still-missing American soldiers from the Vietnam War, but we are clueless about the 300,000 missing Vietnamese from the same period. We certainly don't recognize the cost of sickness and disease and things like unsafe drinking water and unsanitary conditions inflicted on vast segments of the population. The war's aftermath of chemical contamination, such as Agent Orange, An unexploded ordnance hardly register. As a draftee, I obeyed. As a soldier, I learned. As a combat soldier, I was challenged. As an older person, I reflect. Upon my return from Vietnam in late 72, with the very few remaining American combat troops, having survived the massive North Vietnamese invasion of the South with tanks and aircraft, guns, and missiles. I was bitter, confused, and angry. I was a captain, having received a direct commission my first tour, and had decided to stay in the Army. I loved flying helicopters, and this war was over. In the 70s, the Army would send me for my undergraduate degree where I studied sociology, I wanted to learn why people kill each other. It was stuff about group dynamics, socialization, social psychology, etc. Almost immediately I realized that women needed to be empowered and to be able to take charge. I had experienced what men were capable of, and I felt humanity's only chance at a saner future depended on women stepping up. So in the early 70s, I got involved with the National Organization for Women, working for passage of the <clears throat> excuse me, Equal Rights Amendment. I served as secretary for the Central Texas Now chapter, the state's only elected male officer at the time. First introduced in 1923, the ERA states, Equality of rights under the law shall not be abridged or denied by the United States or any state, on account of sex. It is still not a reality, but things have slowly progressed. In the early 70s, women weren't allowed to do a lot of things, from getting mortgages to entering the military in any significant numbers. Females were capped at 2% of the military force. Now they make up 15% of active forces and 18% of the reserves. They were restricted from most of the career-enhancing branches and assignments. Women were not allowed to serve in the positions they qualified for and were limited to a few non-combatant roles. Nothing exemplifies our ignorance of combat more than folks arguing women shouldn't serve in combat roles. I say neither should men. But if we men must, so should women. The irony is women are always involved in combat, if not as soldiers, then as civilians. The safest place for women during combat is in uniform with a job, a voice, a supporting infrastructure providing safe drinking water, food, and medical care. As civilians, women, children, and the infirm during war are a low priority. And by many orders of magnitude, they by far comprise the most casualties of war. We just don't count them. As a young soldier, I obeyed. As a student, I learned. As a career soldier, I was challenged. As an older person, I reflect. In the late 70s, having completed my undergraduate degree, I was trained as a nuclear weapons officer and assigned to Europe where I commanded a battery of nine Pershing missiles, each with a warhead equivalent of up to ten Hiroshima's. On the missile site, my bedroom window faced the missiles on the launch pads, so I had plenty of time to contemplate if I would push the fire buttons. We had innumerable exercises where we didn't know if this was a real fire mission or not, My answer as to whether I would push the buttons was always yes, depending on context and circumstance. But I never really defined for me what the context and circumstance was, which is kind of scary. Returning to the states as an ROTC instructor at a private rich kids college in San Antonio in the early 80s, I got involved in talking about the effects of nuclear weapons to groups advocating for nuclear weapon reductions, and educating the public on their disastrous effects if ever used. I joined Union of Concerned Scientists and got in a little trouble for having participated in community discussions without proper military approvals. The numbers of nuclear weapons on this earth have been greatly reduced over the past 40 years, but the number of countries possessing them continues to increase, and the public's knowledge of their effects if used, has markedly decreased. In the late 80s, we were stationed in the Marshall Islands, home of American atomic and hydrogen bomb testing. A German television news crew doing a documentary on the Bikini and Inuitok nuclear tests and their effects, having toured our remediation efforts on several of the islands, made an interesting observation. Only Americans would think they could fix, contain the after-effects of nuclear explosions in a vain attempt to return the displaced islanders. My final military assignment was with an organization that worked to ensure the continuity of the U.S. government in the event of a nuclear exchange. Isn't that ironic? As a major, I obeyed. As a graduate student, I learned As a lieutenant colonel, I was challenged. As an older person, I reflect. My spiritual journey, like yours, started when I was young. I noticed inconsistencies and injustices. As I grew older, first working in restaurants and later during my military service, those injustices troubled me, and I have been spurred, at least somewhat, to action in regards to racism War, sexism, and nuclear arms. On reflection, we all wish we had done more sooner. Upon having children, and with my military retirement in the local area, my spiritual journey brought me to this church and UUism. I've been a member for 25 years, and over that time, I've learned that Unitarian Universalists were speaking out organizing, and marching in response to the same four social movements I have described. My adult life has been about integrating my childhood incidents in regards to racism, my wartime experiences, women's rights, and my professional involvement with nuclear arms. There's a continuous cycle of learning and being challenged that ever widens and deepens our understanding and knowledge. Reflection is what causes our spirituality to grow and transform, giving meaning to our life experiences and motivation to our actions, present and future. War and peace, the soldier's conundrum. Can peace with the war ever be found for oneself, for one's soul? As a child, I obeyed. As a young adult, I learned. As a soldier, I was challenged, and as an older person, I reflect. Blessed be.